giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robots Smashing Into Other Giant Robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Victoria Guido, and with us today is Kasha Stewart, Director of Growth Engagement at Adobe Express. Kasha, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Well, I thought I'd start off asking you to tell me a little bit more about your background and how you found your way to product from starting out in film and video production. I originally started, I have a fine arts background and did a lot of digital story narrative post-production. You know, back in the day, I'm going to date myself, you know, you had to do, it was a very manual process of chroma keying and removing backgrounds or refining, um, you know, uh, someone's skin or some type of background. That was where I kind of was my bread and butter. I really loved it. It was creative. Then 2008, 2009, the housing market crash and the recession happened. And I thought, you know, I'm not a homeowner. What does that have to do with me? You know, I'm taking these freelance jobs. I had just finished, you know, my grad program. And then all the jobs kind of disappeared. And I was like thinking, you know, here I was, I'd gone to grad school. I had, you know, a really specific skill set. And then everything just poof overnight um, disappeared. And I thought, okay, well, what what's more stable? Like, what could I do to kind of secure a little bit more stability in my job career? So I started applying for jobs and all these like, you know, very different like tech, like they wanted people to be a pre- like what we used to call a predator, like a producer, an editor, someone that knew how to do this, but also knew how to like FTP uh, massive asset files and also knew how to like flag something for when things were going wrong. And so I thought, okay, well, let me just apply for one of these. I have some of the skills. I ticked the box on some of the requirements. And there was a job. It was actually on Craigslist. I actually didn't even know if it was a real job or if it was like a scam situation. But I applied. It had a very unusual title. I think it was content distribution editor. And I thought, okay, well, this is interesting. And it was for abc.com. And this is about 2010. I applied. They called me. I thought, okay, why is ABC on Craigslist? But never mind, it was a legitimate job. And I got into what we call content distribution, so understanding content management systems. And I would be the last person that would actually process the content that would then be delivered to Hulu platforms, ABC.com, many different affiliates. There was also like Verizon mobile deals at this time where the cell phone carriers had their own television networks that they tried to stand up. In that process, you know, I started to really learn about licensing, how content is distributed, meta tagging, and then also the architecture of a CMS. And I just, for the life of me, couldn't understand why this was built this way. It was a very cumbersome tool and like clockwork around 11 p.m. at night, it would crash. And if you hadn't saved your metadata on like a notepad or in like a a spreadsheet, you were, you know, you're basically starting over from scratch. And I remember asking all these questions and they were like, well, it's a proprietary software. And it was built in Seattle. And I was like, yeah, but did they ever talk to like the, you know, I didn't know the terminology like end user at the time, but they never talked to any of us that were part of this small team that had this really pivotal role of like publishing the content. And I remember asking all these questions. I had a supervisor at the time and he jokingly said, well, you should go into product management since you love to ask questions. I didn't even know what product management was. I was like, well, I'm on a producer's track. That's my goal. You know, I have this like film and narrative background and a role came up internally and it was 
for a product specialist, I would say I needed a little bit of convincing to apply. I had some advocates in HR that saw this role and thought I would be perfect for it. And I was like, I don't know, it has all this like day and analytics. And, you know, what does this have to do with people It's storytelling? And they were like, we think you should apply for it. And I made the transition, which is rare sometimes in corporate and internal, you know, transitions, but I did make the transition, I became a product specialist. And I kind of dive deep in into understanding like consumer products from now from a front end experience. So before I was more from a distribution and back end, and now I was really focusing on the UX flow, the UI, what are the targets and how do we position the content? And then what are our consumers saying about the content? So I did open up a whole new world for me. I went head in, I made plenty of mistakes. There were times that I was like, I don't know if I was for the, if I'm for this, if this is right for me, you know, and people definitely weren't shy. Then they would tell me, you don't look like a product manager or, you know, you don't have that background of a CS or, you know, data and analytics person. And, and I totally didn't. I never, um, you know, sold myself as a false representation. But what I did had was I had this really strong inclination of really understanding from the consumer perspective. I always took it back to even in my own circle. And, you know, I think I'm an early adapter. I love technology, but I also have friends that, you know, are still using Yahoo or Hotmail. And I'd be like, oh no, like you got to try Gmail or what about Gchat? This thing came out, like you have to check it out. And, you know, and I would think back when I was building out these products and this was just to level set, this is around the time of web 2.0. I would think, oh, well, you know, how would my friend in New York use this? Or how would my mom like find her content? Or, you know, how would my brother? And I think sometimes we get very seduced when you're building something, especially as a product manager, that everything is from your lens and from your perspective. And the data and then also the feedback was telling us that we weren't really hitting it where consumers were. and They weren't able to find their content as easily as we hoped. And from there, I jumped into kind of entertainment streaming platforms, building out architecture CMS, and then eventually transitioning into growth kind of led roles and then leadership roles um, later in my career. And so I've had the pleasure of working from startups like Beachbody, uh, which was a fitness company, big in the fitness space, but smaller on the digital perspective, all the way to going back to Disney, leading a team at Movies Anywhere. And now I'm leading a growth team at Adobe. Wow. Thank you so much. That's so interesting. And we have a couple different tracks we could get into here. One thing I want to note that I thought was interesting is when you got into your new role, what really kind of presented itself to you was that you identified a problem in the UX, right? Like you kind of a lateral move and then you found this problem. Then you had advocates who pushed you to go in that direction. And so uh, if you have advice for people who are looking to make that transition, how do you find those advocates that encourage you to chase the problems that you find? Oh, that's a great question. I, you know, I, people ask me this frequently because I think it on paper, it, it is hard and, you know, no one's going to find you, you know, in your cubicle or now, and a lot of us are working remotely in our houses. So you have to be your best kind of cheerleader and campaign manager. I also think like, what is it that is on your top three lists? Like in product, we have nice to have, must haves, and then we kind of prioritize or stack rank or work backwards from that. So I ask people, you know, what's the most important thing for your next role? And then those are the things that you need to either lean in and start to amplify that you're already doing and how you would make a great 
candidate. I think internal candidates, they do have a, an advantage because they know the culture or they may know the players or they may see something from a different perspective, but they know what the company's challenges are. So I would start by, you know, first talking to your manager and you can have a great manager or not so great manager, but start there, show them that, you know, I'm on this track plan, but I really want to be here. Is there things that I can do in my current role that will support that transition? Are there people that you can recommend? And sometimes you can get traction with your manager, but if you can't, then start to search within your network. And if there's a product manager who's maybe in your org or actually, you know, would be maybe at the same leveling or someone new, kind of start to explain to them, hey, I would love to set up a coffee chat, you know, a 15 minute informational just to hear how you did it or how, what's your perspective. And you're constantly, as you're taking notes and people usually like it when they get an opportunity to share their story or talk about themselves, you know, and as you take notes, ah, I'm actually looking to transition to that. Do you have any advice for me? You know, if you had something in an open role, what would you want from that candidate? And so you're constantly planting those seeds of like, I am this candidate, here's why. And product managers, and I think also in hiring managers, you know, we can, we have a room full of distractions. But if something's laid out to me in concise language, and it's like showing results of like, oh, well, you know, I did this on the content management side. And I think this would be transferable. And here's why. And you don't have to be long winded. I don't, I'm not into people writing dissertations and producing 20 page decks. I don't always have the time to read that as lovely as it sounds, like drive in on your skills. How are they relatable or transferable? And then what are the goals that you've been able to achieve in your current role? And what are you looking to do in your next role? And I think if you start to place yourself there and definitely get out and start talking to people in your employee resource groups. And then also, you know, internally, there's always at some companies, there's HR or employee resource groups that will have at least like a blog post on, you know, how to transition within the company. And if they don't, you know, search out those people. And it's not an overnight process. You know, I've seen people where it's been a flip of the switch and they're on a rocket. And I've seen other people where it's taken times, but they've built those rapports with people that started to get to know them outside of their current role. Right. That makes a lot of sense. And, And you're also involved in many professional networks, right? And so do you also get a benefit for your career growth from that? Yes. You know, I I feel like I never stop learning, you know, as much as there's always something new coming out. I mean, there's like now I'm into like the chat bots and AI and and I'm like, okay, here's another thing I got to learn. Let me let me add this to my to-do list, you know, so I never want to take that for granted. So I feel like the communities kind of keep me, you know, it's a temperature check of what's going on either from like a challenge perspective or what type of new technologies people are integrating into their existing platforms and how it's actually growing or benefiting them, whether it's from a machine learning and building out, you know, recommendation engines that have saved time and then actually get smarter and we're building out algorithms all the way to, you know, what would it be like to have AI enhancements on an existing platform and still help drive that, you know, high value consumer experience. So I don't take for granted. I also recommend people that even if you're not in product to join product communities so that you start to hear the language and you start to to see how product managers think and how hiring and leadership think. And, you know, LinkedIn is a great resource. You know, I belong to women in product, black product managers. There's a slew of like tech ladies. And I'm always kind of looking, you know, there's newsletters that I love, um, Lenny's newsletter. And I'm always like, oh, that's a nice one. Let me take that away from my team. Or, oh, you know, I didn't actually see that. I didn't think about that. I didn't see that playing out with NFTs in that way. Mm, really interesting. Or that, you know, TikTok is taking over search. I'm 
now I'm like, okay, how can my product that I'm growing, you know, from an engagement standpoint, also have really strong representation on TikTok in a way that's authentic and users can find us and we can continue to engage with users that way. You know, start small, find the right community that works for you. There's also product-led growth, product alliances. There's so many of them. And I think you just start to kind of join them if you can. Um, Some of them are free. Some of them have dues and they're really worth it. It's a value add. And you never know who's going to be posting in these Slack community groups too. You might see something where they're like, okay, with associate level or okay with someone transitioning or looking to help someone transition. And I also, you know, mentor and direct some of my mentees in that direction so that they don't feel like they're in the passenger seat of their career and waiting for something to happen. Like you have to be active in this pursuit and you also have to be a driver in it. Right. I, I felt that myself in my career. I felt like my, my network was my number one source of learning, like you said. And also when you're considering a career change, sometimes you don't even know what else is out there or like what other types of jobs are out there, right? I love, I love that you said that about that. And, and you also mentioned you know, women in product and Black women in product. How can we promote those groups more and <laughs> get more women in product? And why is it important to bring a different perspective into product? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think, you know, podcasts like this, you know, letting people know. And then also when I do a post on LinkedIn, I, you know, do the hashtags of all the groups that either I belong to or I might tag them. You know, I one thing that I do you know, when I do start to mentor someone, I said, be active in the community, share your voice, you're going to start to get comfortable, you know, product managers have it, it's not a a career for the week, I'll say that. And, um, (laughs) you know, you have to kind of have an opinion. So, you know, start small and start promoting yourself in those groups or hearing what people are saying. And even if my company is, is hiring or someone else, another hiring manager has a post, I'll say, oh, did you think about posting this or adding this hashtag to this? This would definitely help give you a different type of candidate and also get more traffic. And it's important to me because if I think about the world population, how we're changing and who's showing up, you want that representation of the people that are working on it. They're going to be thinking about it from a different lens that I didn't even realize that that was an issue or, oh, wow, we need to really tap into that. Or actually, we should promote this in a different way because we're going to cast a wider net or we're going to cast a really specific net with this demo it can grow by 10x versus, you know, us thinking very generally and saying, well, we're happy with a 2x growth. So that's why it's important to me. I'm also always like balancing like, you know, do I have enough, you know, representation of women? Do I have enough representation of men on the team too? You know, I don't want to go one side too far and then I'm out of balance and I'm just hiring the same people that are like me. It is kind of challenging sometimes because I have to think about what is the team need? What is the team dynamics missing? And who is that person that can kind of bring in or usher in that different perspective and then also work cohesively with the existing team? And so that's a lot of balancing act that I do in my current role and really thinking about, okay, well, you know, we're serving small businesses. We're serving the social entrepreneurs. You know, has anybody ever done that? You know, we can be very kind of elitist in tech, especially in product of like, well, I do it this way. And I I've got Discord and I have all the NFTs that I've ever wanted to collect it and I can hear and listen to all that and I can geek out. But then I'm like, if I go back to my friends, they'll be, Kasha, 
what are you talking about? Can you speak English to us? And they'll be like, can you please calm down? And I'm like, oh, but there's this thing. And, and then I'm like, oh, but then I'm like, well, maybe I need to have someone who is not like me because they're going to be thinking of that person who really just has a simple task they're trying to solve for it they have a little bit limited amount of time and they also have limited patience they're not in a place where they want to learn and go on youtube and watch a tutorial they're really just you know hey i need to get this birthday card or this invitation out for my kids and and this was a free product that i saw from you know seo results and i'm here and you know that's the value in finding that person and then carrying through a journey. Me, I'm going to be picky. I'm going to probably research. I'm going to look at reviews. I'm going to look at two other competitors. I'm going to try to start to line up. And then you've lost me by that point. You want to get that person and you want to make it a frictionless experience. So I do encourage when I'm building teams to think about the dynamics, always kind of going for people that are, you know, want to be there and that are really dedicated to the product, but also bring a different perspective than I did. And, and I come from an untraditional background in tech. So I think that's probably why I'm so conscious of this and how we can make these changes. And I think historically, or the data proves that, you know, diverse teams often excel faster and better than traditional teams. Right. And teams that are diverse and are in an inclusive environment where they feel like they can bring their authentic selves. Correct. Yeah. It's one thing to have diversity, but then it's also another, you know, the counterbalance of inclusion and how do you set people up for success that have different backgrounds. And, you know, I have a great, strong team of rock stars, as I say, but they all are different. They all need different things. They all have different kind of needs from a coaching or leadership perspective. You know, some I'm more hands-on, others I'm hands-off. But as a leader, it's like being perceptive of that and saying, okay, well, this person likes to run their own ship. I'm going to be here on the sidelines. And this person, I'm going to be out front. I'm going to be, you know, walking with them side by side. You know, I don't know why I have all these sports analogies because I was terrible at sports in junior high and high school. <laughs> but I always feel like I'm, you know, this coach out here with like a whistle and like a clipboard. And I'm like telling them, I'm like, okay, I'm going to set this person up. This person's going to happen here. And that's how I look at it from a growth perspective. You know, when I'm really kind of assessing the roadmap and the backlog and, you know, what's going to be our impact, I'm also thinking about, well, how is everybody working cohesively? And is there a way that we can have shared experiences so that that way, you know, oh, we learned from such and such as experiment and that's going to influence the other half of my team or actually I'm going to have them focus or I know that we're going to have too many mobile tests at the end of Q2 because the monetization team is also trying to test something very similar. So it's a constant juggling act in my role. Right. I, I very much relate to that. I was a, a competitive rock climbing coach um, a few years ago on top of my full-time job. And my kids would ask me if I was also a motivational speaker because I was always like pumping people up while they're climbing. So yeah, I, I find it fascinating like how you um, think about the needs of your team and you know your own growth from an individual contributor into a, a leader. And how do you coach people on your team along that path, like making that transition from being really strong in product to managing a team of product people. 
Oh, that's a great question. And I love that you're like a rock climbing. I love that. I'm like, I, I'm all like uh, what we call thumbs. I would just be looking, I mean, just thinking about rock climbing, my hands are probably getting sweaty right now. But um, and for my team, I, I do have people that, you know, they're, they're getting to a senior PM level and they're like, what's next? And I really like to do an assessment of like, well, what do you think is next? And what is really going to help your career growth? And some of them are like, well, I want to do leadership. I want to do this. And I ask, just like I asked an any product question, what's the why behind that? Is it a financial contribution? Is it a recognition? Or is it that you are really invested in kind of people development? Because I, one thing I do like to preference, and especially people that are earlier mid-level careers, that you know, managing a product versus managing people are two different skill sets. And I didn't even understand that when I started to get into management, I kind of fell into it. I had a leader that exited the company and it was like a, oh gosh, you know, what will we do next? And I was just like, I think we should still continue to pursue the roadmap uh, is is what I would think to do first. So one of the things I do say is that, you know, your work is going to change. You know, I don't PM and I'm not regularly with the engineering team, you know, on a day-to-day basis. And so I will say to the team that, you know, first at certain points you can balance it where you'll have both where you might own still part of the portfolio, but then you have maybe one or two direct parts. But as you start to grow, you will start to transition out of kind of the day-to-day or building individual features or initiatives. And I do ask my um, PMs that are they ready for that? And if they check all the boxes and and say that they have a strong why, then I start off by, okay, well, let's see if our team is eligible for an internship. We're going to open up an internship this summer. And instead of this intern reporting into me, they're going to report into you. What's your onboarding plan? What's your growth strategy for this person? And then what do you want this person to accomplish at the end of the internship? And it's a baby step for them to kind of get their feet wet on what is it like to lead someone? And then also, what are the challenges? You know, there's always like a perfect storm where things go great. But what about the times when things are not going great? And how do you communicate with that person? What are the nudges that they need to give for them to either redirect them? Or what are the things that you need to do to kind of show them the happy path to success? So those are where I start. I also, we have, you know, international teams and people onboarding, you know, I work for a huge company, so there's more opportunities there. But then I will also say, you know, if someone is really wants to drive and be in a leadership role, what are the mentoring opportunities within the company? So how would you mentor somebody? And what would be your advice? How do you set up a weekly cadence? What is your expectations of this? How should they measure success and goals? All these are things that are going to be transferable to when that opportunity comes up. And then also too, what is the right situation? Is it a mix of, you know, where I'm 50% IC and then I'm, you know, this other 40, 50% of uh, people management, I encourage them to look at opportunities internally, even if I'm at the sacrifice of losing, you know, what I call one of my rock stars, I know that it's inevitable for people to grow. And I never want to be the person that held someone back out of jealousy or fear or my own insecurities. And I do have a strong network that when I post something, I get so many candidates, it's, it's almost to the sense of like, wow, this person's great, or Wow, this person, wow, they went to Stanford and they did this and now they're transiting. I'm like, oh my gosh, they want to work with me. And so that's always very exciting. So I never want to get so trapped in the ideology that the team is only great with 
these people. You know, I'm like the team starts with me and my leadership. So I need to be able to build a team. I need to be able to grow a team. And sometimes, you know, you might have a great talent pool and other times you don't. And then what do you do in those? I mean, that's what leadership really is. It's not always when you have everybody applying for your job and you have all this like funding and your P&Ls are (laughs) going incredible. It's, you know, it's those times where they come back to you and say, yeah, we're not going to get that done this sprint. So you'll just have to figure it out. Or someone's resigning that you didn't see coming. And then you're like, okay, um, I might have to roll up my sleeves and take over their part of the roadmap just as a stopgap till I have someone. And that's the things that, you know, can make or break your leadership. Yeah. It's easy when everything is going great. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So don't we love that? (laughs) Giant robots smashing into other giant robots. As life moves online, brick and mortar businesses are having to adapt to survive. With over 18 years of experience building reliable web products and services, ThoughtBot is the technology partner you can trust. We provide the technical expertise to enable your business to adapt and thrive in a changing environment. We start by understanding what's important to your customers to help you transition to intuitive digital services your customers will trust. We take the time to understand what makes your business great and work fast yet thoroughly to build, test, and validate ideas, helping you discover new customers. Take your business online with design-driven digital acceleration. Find out more at tbot.io slash acceleration, or click the link in the show notes for this episode. You mentioned a few times, kind of switching more into your approach to product management about the experiments that you run. You know, sometimes those go great and sometimes they don't go so great. Uh, So can you tell me about a time you ran an experiment and the results were really different than what you expected? And what did you do from that? Oh, gosh. Yeah, there's so many. I'm trying to think of like, what's the best example? Gosh, I'm like, do I go for mobile? No web. (laughs) Well, I think in growth, a part of your experiment should fail. Because if they're not failing, that also means to me, you're not taking enough risk. And you're taking things that you already know, in some ways are like, you know, low hanging fruit, and you're very comfortable in it. And I do encourage my team to take big risk of how do we start to find something. We recently had something to help users on the AI side. It was a really like unique feature. User uploads an image and AI automatically spits out templates with this, you know, user generated content. And so I was like, we were so excited. We were watching the demos. I felt like on replay, you know, as we got out of the meeting, it didn't necessarily do what we thought it would do. And so then, you know, you had to take a pause, like what happened? And you know, one of the things that we learned from the test is that people just didn't understand what they were supposed to do. They didn't understand the process of their workflow, and they also weren't engaged with what the results came back. So I think that's one thing that, you know, I know there's a lot of chatter in the space about AI taking over and, you know, where are we going to be? And I still think we need to have that human perspective, that person that is like, hey, these search results are really not what the consumer is looking for. And yes, it solved a requirement of like picture, upload, output, but the output is not matching what that consumer's needs were. It didn't solve their problem. And we have to constantly twerk 
continue to filter and refine the algorithm. So our first out to bat was not great. But what we learned is that we have to have more variety of the type of output of content and that we also have to do more handholding. As much as we think that people are going to dive right in because it's in the press and it's in TechCrunch and on Verge, that is not our general population. I can talk to my girlfriend, she's a doctor, you know, and she's like, hey, I'm just really trying to do this for my local women's physicians network. All this other stuff, she's like, it's kind of like overwhelming to me. Mm. And I just, I didn't even see that. I was just like, aren't you excited that you have five options? She's like, no, I, I just kind of needed the one thing with the squiggly backgrounds and, you know, and the template that I could alter. She's like, these don't actually really speak to me. And so we had to come back and redefine the algorithm and also think about, you know, less choices for people. As much as, you know, we were like, we can randomize it, we can output more types of templates. It's really about finding the cues that the user is giving us to find that right match. And it's not something that I think we're going to get and knowing from the test, we're not going to get on the first try. Mm-hmm. We're going to continue to test this. And that's what's going to make it better because we've stress tested. I mean, in growth, sometimes, you know, I tell my team, like, don't get our, you know, hopes up, our hearts set into it because we can spend a lot of time in crafting the experiment and doing, you know, the 50% and then the other 50 control and variance. And then when it comes back, they're just not excited or the consumer just didn't really gravitate or attach to it. And so then we have to stop and I think, okay, There's a lesson here. Is it the education? Is it the guidance? Is it the language that we use? You'd be surprised how like one word can throw off someone's context and they're turned off or they don't want to do it or they like, oh, oh, this is this is kind of cool. Oh, I didn't realize that this was a free service or, oh, I didn't realize that I could save this and it's removing the background for me. And then now I have all these options. You know, growth is like, it is a hard challenge. I mean, we move so fast, which is what I love, but then we're always kind of looking at the data and having to constantly pivot and transition based off of our previous tests. I mean, now I'm thinking about, uh, you know, a time when I was at Beachbody and I was, you know, I was so excited because I got to do native app development uh, on mobile platforms. I'd never done that before. You know, we were all excited. We had an iOS product that was really strong. And of course, you know, many of the people that worked in the office were all iOS users. So they weren't even thinking about Android. And we had just missed the mark as a company, not really focusing on building out a great Android native app experience. And we were just kind of relying on the mobile web experience. And I remember thinking like, oh, okay, well, you know, you have something. And then I went into a Facebook community group and I just saw all the like complaints. I saw all the people's frustrations. I saw also all these like user generated hacks. People were sharing, you know, what to do when your video stops. And I just was like, oh my gosh, we need to get on this. And so from that experience, I was able to champion and be one of the people that was like, hey, we need to help drive this, you know, on Android. We need to really like, this is really a problem. This is really, we could set ourselves up for success. And then we can also grow in other markets outside of the US. And I remember, you know, looking at the first designs and they were all done by our 
creatives team, which were, were iOS users, you know, so even in like that situation, I think of that as more of like a growth with internally versus putting something out to user facing to the consumer. Mm-hmm. It still was like a challenge. Like, how do I influence? How do I show that this is not the right path? How do I show that, hey, we're not using material design or best practices? And this is going to hurt us in the long run because people that are on these platforms on Android, they're used to seeing things in this manner and we're presenting it them in another way. And then now we're wondering why they're confused. Right, right. And and you mentioned a couple different tactics to connect to that consumer voice. What other ways do you try to bring that connection between the end user and the customer to the engineering teams, to the rest of the organization, to the business, right? Right. I'm very privileged in my organization. We have a really strong user research team as we're doing our experiments. Now, depending on how large or how much time we'll invest into an experiment, we will do like a prototype kind of test in a smaller pool, let's say before we go out to A-B test or have a controlled invariant situation. And sometimes those are the little things that I can take back and a video or like that comment and send it. I don't even need need to, you know, wait for it to be polished into a presentation or to a confluence page or even in JIRA. And I can say to my counterpart, hey, Ganesh, do you see this? This is what I'm trying to solve for. And then it's like that aha moment. And I can say, and, you know, and engineers are always, you know, delightful. And they'll say, well, that's only one data point. And I'm like, yes, but it is a significant point. And I think if we tested this more, we will see more people are struggling with this. And how can we change that? What are their solutions? And I'm really big on collaboration. Product owns kind of the deliverables and the path and is is accountable for the results. But this is a joint effort between design, between data and analytics and engineering. So early on, I present the problem. This is the why. Here's, here's kind of our best path. But what do you think? And that, as to me in my career, has always yielded such a higher result instead of, you know, coming from an authoritative or dictatorship of, well, this is the way that I've envisioned it. Here's my mocks. Here's my wires. And this is why. And then kind of leaving it, you know, out to pasture or throwing it over the fence and saying, okay, and I need it in a week and a half. And I've been on both sides of different product teams and different engineering teams work differently. But I have found that when you get people to buy in to care and then also give them that consumer value of that person is frustrated. I mean, that's what was the trigger for me when I went into the Facebook groups. I really didn't have like the biggest inclination that we were having such a problem on Android. Mm. I was an iOS user. I was happy with the product. I could get my workouts in or, you know, I could find what I was looking for. And then when I did that, I started screenshotting. And then I started to share this out in the Slack channel. And then there's also ways now we are, we have so many things where you can have bots that will, you know, record the feedback if someone says in the app store, that's one way to kind of bring it up to people. And then if you don't have the funding or have an in-house user research, there's always usertesting.com. There's one ways that you can start, even if you work with design and you guys are a small team, hey, I really, I'm so committed to this working, but I really would love to run a test. Mm -hmm. And then also running a survey after people test or even in product, you know, what did they think about the experience? And if you can't even get that, you can always do thumbs up, thumbs down. You can always do, is this a four-star experience or five-star? Would you like to tell us more? 
I would say that sometimes we have blindness to surveys and to people asking for us our opinions because you know you just want to get to that thing. But that small sampling of people that do respond, I think, is a way for you to kind of, if you're not sure think about this directionally. Mm-hmm. You know, I was leaning more towards this, but wow, this user research came back. And I think people are going to really appreciate, you know, having this extra step, you know, and which is something like a, an oxymoron for me, because I'm always thinking about, well, what's the, the easiest path or what's the least path of resistance to getting the user into the experience? And then sometimes you're dropping them into a whole new, what we call canvas or experience, and they have no idea what to do. Right. I, I liked the way you described your approach or how not to do it was to like just throw things over a wall and <laughs> say, this is the way yeah. it should be. Well, one of my questions that I like to ask people who have design and product backgrounds is just what does product and design have to do with DevOps? Yeah. So everybody has to have a starting point. And a lot of times I was definitely a product manager when I was more in the day to day in the IC where I kind of like in my mind, I like to figure things out on my own. And that way I like to come with this pretty package of like, I've thought of all the different angles. I thought of the best use case and the worst use case. And as much as that was like delightful for me, I noticed that the people in engineering, they would kind of check a box too. And they'd be like, okay, done, you know? Mm -hmm. And then (laughs) we might get to a certain point and they would be like, oh, well, you know, one time when I was building something for, you know, Beachbody, and, and again, it was on Android, and it was the search, and I didn't think anything of it. I was just like, oh, yeah, you know, top result, you know, then stack rank alphabetically, and then I hadn't thought about new content. And I remember thinking, like, why didn't my engineer, like, say this? Because this is something that we do on iOS. And they said, well, you never asked us. Mm-hmm. And, and I was there, you know, but I'm like, but you work on the product too. And they're like, oh yeah, but you know, you, you run the show. So this is what you wanted. So this is what I coded. And I just remember like feeling like I had egg on my face, you know, in a meeting because now we had all this new content coming out and the search results weren't accommodating for new content. They were ex- accommodating for the existing metadata. And I just remember thinking like never again. And you know, from a DevOps perspective, I think of, you know, there's a lot of um, change in the industry where we also have like product ops people mm-hmm. as well. I'm not sure, you know, and I think of it as a, like additional layering. It can be good and bad. I think there's positives and advantages. I think there's always like growing points. And I think you have to give like, what is the ultimate goal? Like if you do have a DevOps team, like are they also in early in the iteration? Are they part of the brainstorms? That's how I run my Um, small pod. We have design, analytics, and engineering part of our early brainstorms. So instead of us kind of holding our ideas in a huddle, we will kind of tee up, let's say, our top five and say, hey, directionally, this is what direction that we're going. And we're framing it to the problems that are most important for us to solve. So we don't turn it into a hackathon where people are trying to build a spaceship and a brainstorm. That's not the goal. The goal is that, hey, we have these particular problems. This is the direction that we want to go in. And this is how we carry it through. And then what do you guys think? And then we're in a mirror board in real time and we put the timer on and then get everybody's opinions. In some product groups, I've seen where product team doesn't actually talk to the engineering. They just talk to 
the technical PM, which then translates out what the actual specs and requirements are. I haven't been part of that type of org yet in my career. I have been traditionally where it's a one-to-one ratio where if there's a product manager, there's going to be a data and analytics analyst assigned to them. There's going to be an engineer assigned to them. There's also going to be a designer. And that's been my sweet spot. And I've had a lot of gains and tractions for that. You know, in my mind, ideas can come from anywhere. It doesn't have to start with product, but product is going to be the leader. And, you know, I don't want to think of it as a gatekeeping situation, but we are the ones that are going to drive it through with our um, cross-functional teams as a partnership. So I hope that answers the question about DevOps. I'm not sure. Sometimes I can get into a little bit of a tangent and (laughs) start talking about my own experience. I love talking about it because some product people will say nothing. (laughs) And I'm like, well, no, you're supposed to talk to people, like, you know, bring everybody in. That's the whole philosophy of it. And and I like that you mentioned product ops and like design ops as well as like thinking about how you could automate the process of what you're doing or like how to how the information flows across your team. Um, I'm sure with your designs and, and product and everything is, is more on the product ops side. Right. And and I think having an ops, you know, it does have like one central point of contact. So if you want to think about alleviating steps or reducing kind of the white noise or the friction that you may have in an organization, you have one kind of point of contact, then that will person will own it and they'll almost become a mini pod and then distribute the information, which is definitely like a gain and a positive. I just wonder on the reverse side, though, how does that engineer or how does that designer then surface, hey, what about this? Mm-hmm. Or I think this is a better way. Or actually, we tested this two years ago and the results weren't great. And so that's the only thing where how does that two-way communication go back and forth when you have ops? I think ops definitely gives more structure. You know, you're definitely in a high performance. Everybody knows what their marching orders are. We know who's on first. And we also know from an accountability and an escalation process where all these pieces are working together. So I can see the benefits to it. I'm not opposed to it. I just want to make sure that the people that are actually building the products also have a time to have say and have an opinion. And whether I, you know, that helps change me, I want to at least hear feedback first. And then as a product leader and as a product manager, it's up to that person to make the decision of like, okay, you know what, I've thought about this or looking at the data or this person raised a really significant point that I hadn't considered. I do think that we need to think about this and focus. That's the advantage for me, I feel like, of having, you know, kind of that um, bottoms up approach mm-hmm. to development and then running your teams. Right. I think that makes sense. And and you're right. I think it, it can be successful, but I think there's a, a, a good warning there about and people do this with DevOps teams as well, where they create a DevOps team and then put them in a silo. And like, yeah, right? you know, well, that's kind of missing the point about the whole thing. Uh, yeah. Yes. Like we want to empower those people. Yeah. Well, everything new is old again. I remember when I didn't even talk to an engineer and I remember, and this was early in my product, you know, when I had the product specialist, I would be at my cube writing requirements. I thought they were great. And then we switched to an agile format 
And I remember going into a meeting thinking, okay, we're just going to go over the stuff that's next. And they had all these questions for me. And it terrified me (laughs) because it made me think like, maybe I don't know what I'm talking about. Or yeah, I didn't think about the error messaging. Oh, okay. Yeah. What happens if someone loses internet connection during that session and they started the process? Oh, I don't know what what should happen. And so (laughs) there were all these kind of questions. But before I would just process my requirements, put it in a JIRA ticket, and then you might get some JIRA comments, but there wasn't this like back and forth in real time. And then I had to really step up and write my requirements better because at that point I had just had like, oh, this happens in check one, this happens at steps two, and then step three, the end. That was my own kind of naive perspective at the time when I was writing requirements. And I didn't know that the engineers had all these questions because we had that layer of, they didn't call it a DevOps person. I think they called it, you know, an engineering lead where he would just take the tickets and then they were doing their own sub tickets to make it make sense. And so then when we started to transition into more of an agile and rating things and giving value to them, I really had to change and it helped me grow. And it was definitely uncomfortable, but it definitely pushed me into thinking, okay, someone's reading this. They're an engineer. They're not thinking about this. How can I get as clear as possible, but also still think about the consumer or the persona that I'm thinking? about that is is trying to solve this problem. Right. That makes sense. It reminds me of one of my first jobs actually was in Washington, D.C., which you went to undergrad there. I would actually pass Howard University on the bus every day to work. (laughs) Oh, wow. Nice. (laughs) I wonder, are you um, familiar with Bison Hacks and their annual hackathon that they have there? I know you're from the film department, but they do have the computer science does a hackathon there every year. I am not familiar with that specific one, but I I've participated. I mean, we have some at Adobe. We have our you know regular hackathons internally, mm-hmm. but I would love to hear more about the one that you're describing. It sounds um, pretty fascinating. Do they have like an ultimate goal? Or are they building from an existing product or is this something new? I think it's something new. So I believe that they uh, come together to create solutions to help improve the livelihood of the DMV community. So I think every year oh, they wow. might have a different purpose, but it is okay, like, got it. great, like interact with students and do different projects and it's super fun organization. So yeah, I'll send you a link when we'll share it in the show yeah. as well. <laughs> I love it. I love it. This podcast, I'm already like growing in, <laughs> in the short time we've, we've talked. So I love that. Yes, and we're coming to the end of our time here. Uh, one final question before I ask you if you have any other final takeaways, but what are you excited yeah. about on the roadmap for Adobe Express that you have coming? Well, I'm excited. Gosh, what can I share? Let me let me think. I'm like, I have my, I, I'm, I'm like, I see legal like tapping me on the shoulder, you know. Um, um, I'm excited that we are making so many improvements to really simplify the experience and that we're also diversifying our use cases of the types of people that will be coming to the platform. So when I say that we've, let's say we've been, you know, focused on what we call the social creator or the small business owner or hustler, I really want to lean more into that and expand that. We also have, you know, more of our, what we call our pro users coming to Adobe Express. So if you think of someone that's 
you know, a professional graphic designer that may need something where they need to have a collaborator, we're enhancing that process. And then also, like, I'm, I'm most excited coming into 2023 is that, you know, Adobe's Express is going to be, you know, what we think of as the doorway to all the Adobe ecosystems. Mm-hmm. So whether you start with Express on a small scale and building out a template that you can really grow with this product and whether you use it for, you know, your everyday, either social needs or even in your everyday work or marketing, you can start to have people come to the platform and collaborate on it. We have so many exciting things that it's interesting because, you know, I my team is focused on activation and repeat engagement. Mm. And, you know, how do those two worlds kind of marry each other? Getting the user in from having them on, on a first day, great day one experience, and then carrying them through for when they return. And one thing that I'm excited for is that we've had this recent pivot and just, and this came out of user research, honestly, that, you know, we don't have to wait for the user to leave the platform to remind them of all the great things that we can do. And I'm really excited about having, you know, machine learning capabilities on the platform where if your next step is this, what's the next best available action? And then how does that help enhance not only your experience of the product, but then also starting to plant those seeds of you can schedule this in advance or creating this type of content once a week will drive exponentially your growth on your platform. And that to me is like making us, you know, stronger and really looking at it not only from I want the consumer to do these series of high value actions, but I really want to see them grow on their own personal platform level. And here's a tool that can help you do everything that you need to. And whether you're someone that posts once a week or whether you're someone in the office that is collaborating for a marketing meeting, or if you're a professional that has something that, you know, I just really want to use a template. I have an aesthetic. I know how to use Photoshop. I know how to use Illustrator, but let me put this in Express. I can send it to the client. They can make comments and then they can also feel like they're part of the creative process. That makes me happy because I was this fine art, you know, major, feels like a hundred years ago. And I remember, thinking like, oh, well, I love these products. They're expensive or saving up for them. And then now there's so many different plans. There's so many different ways. And I would have loved an opportunity to have a free product that allowed me to just start to understand my own type of style and capabilities without having this feeling that I have to be a designer and that everything has to be perfect. So I'm excited for that. We have so much growth planned, new exciting ways on the platform. And also you'll see some new looks. I can't share too much more than that. So I hope the little bit of tidbit doesn't get me in trouble. But, you know, sometimes you got to break some rules, you know, you got to break some eggs to make an omelet. (laughs) (laughs) Any other final thoughts for our listeners today? I would love for, you know, to give me feedback. I always, I love doing these. Um, I'm active on LinkedIn. You can find me at Kasha Stewart, you know, shoot me a note. I get a healthy amount of mail, but I promise I will reply back to you. If you have questions and what your biggest challenges are, check out Adobe Express. It's free, by the way. And continue to, you know, I, I just remember being this like early in my career and having these questions. And at different points, I was afraid to ask questions because I was like, I don't want 
want to sound silly or maybe I'm not understanding that or, you know, maybe I should have been a CS major. And I, 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 I say to people now, like, you have to have a starting point. You never know kind of what is next on the horizon or that, you know, everybody had been thinking about that and they were just waiting for the person to raise their hand. That's one of the things that I always would encourage people. And, you know, to check out these product communities and, you know, thank you to this podcast for allowing me to share my journey and my story. It's always a pleasure. I, I learned something and, you know, I'm like, oh yeah, I did actually do that, but that was a while ago that I might forget. So it's good. It's like to have my own little mini retro. So I thank you for inviting me here and to, you know, share my journey. Well, thank you. That's a very powerful message. And I appreciate you coming on today to share it with us. You can subscribe to the show and find notes along with the complete transcript for this episode at giantrobots.fm. If you have questions or comments, email us at hosts at giantrobots.fm. You can find me on Twitter at Victorious G. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Mandy Moore. Thank you for listening. See you next time. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot, your expert strategy, design, development, and product management partner. We bring digital products from idea to success and teach you how because we care. Learn more at ThoughtBot.com.